You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. Today we're continuing our conversation about bail reform, criminal justice reform. I'd refer you back to our interview with the Bail Project on this particular topic. I think my guests might have a bit of a different take. I'm not sure yet. We haven't had a pre-interview, but they found me and reached out to me, so I'm guessing they probably want to give a different side. My guest is Ken Good, a Texas bail attorney and a board member of the Professional Bondsman of Texas. Ken, thank you so much for reaching out. It's great to talk to you, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and what's your background. I probably have a very blue-collar background. I grew up in a farming town, used to move irrigation pipes during the summers to make some extra cash. I had two public school teachers for parents, taught me the importance of an education. Went to college, started teaching school just like my parents, got master's degree and always wanted to go to law school. So I went to law school and became an attorney. I started representing bondsmen about 10 years in, so I've been doing it for over 20 years. I've argued some very important cases before the Court of Criminal Appeals on the issues of bail. I'm active at the legislature through the association in proposing and addressing legislation. And really, there was a lawsuit filed in Harris County about bail reform and they just, it was clear that none of the parties understood the bail. And so I, I told our association, we have to become experts on these issues because no one else seems to be understand bail like we do. So we really be, set out to become very knowledgeable about the legal issues. And that's really what's brought me to where I am today. So let's talk about that. What exactly is bail? Walk me through the process. Sure. I, let's say I get arrested for something, and obviously I'm in Indiana, it's probably different in Texas. But let's say I get arrested for a bailable offense. What level would that be, and what would the process be for me? Let's say this is Texas. So in Texas, we have a constitutional provision that says everyone has a right to bail with sufficient sureties. That means you have a right, only constitutionally protected right to release you have is through the private industry. Everything else is created by statute. They can take, they can give it, they can take it away. That's actually been litigated during COVID and has been confirmed. So you're the only way you have a right to release that they cannot prevent you from having is through the private industry, unless it's authorized by the Texas Constitution. And those are murder, capital murder, and some offenses that they've specifically authorized with the Constitution. So Texas says what? You cannot... You can't. Everybody that's arrested has a right to bail with sufficient sureties unless they're charged with one, two, three, four, or five. Gotcha. So I would come to you and... You, you would get arrested right. and you may be arrested on a warrant that has a bail amount set or you may just be arrested. You take, you're take you taken before a magistrate. There's several factors they have to consider but under 1715 of the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure. And that one of them is you have to the bail has to be sufficient to sufficiently high to give assurance that you'll return to court because we, the bail project says we can, we can't require a private surety bondsman because we have this presumption of innocence. The presumption of innocence is a trial issue. It's not a bail issue. The bail issue, there's no, none of the considerations for bail 
has anything to do with the presumption of innocence because it's all about giving an assurance that you will show up to court to answer the charges. And so you would have a bond set either in the warrant or once you appear before the magistrate, either you or a family member would contact a bonding company. You would say, hey, we've got this charge. This is the amount, depending on the how risky it is. The bondsman may require some family members to sign with you. And then you, uh, they enter into a contract to post the bond for you for a set amount of money. And then you are released from jail. You then report to the bonding company either weekly or more, depending on how risky they are, how severe the criminal charge is. And then oh, when you get a hearing notice, the bondsman reminds you to get, go to the hearing. If you have trouble getting to the hearing, the bondsman will go and take you to the hearing because that's how they've put up money to get you out that they have to pay a penalty for if you don't do what you say you're going to do. So they're a guarantee of that. But if you fail to show up, the most common issue is people get scared after they fail to show up for court. And so they start hiding. The bondsman is the best thing. Of the, one of the really good things that the bondsman do is they have a relationship with them. So they talk them through coming back more quickly. And if they run, then we actually hire recovery people to go and locate them and bring them back to court or take them to jail because we have a time period that we get, we have to get them back or we owe the full amount of the bond and we pay the full amount of the bond many times if we don't do our job. And, and the concept is we want them back. We want them back as quickly as possible so that we can get their criminal case back on track because criminal cases are unique. We can't do anything without the defendant present. If the defendant's not there, their case is put on hold. And we want them back. We want them back quickly. That gives justice to the, the victims and it allows the criminal justice system to work. I like to say that the bail industry is the grease that cre keeps the conveyor belt of the criminal justice system running. Because that's, we do one thing, we do it very well. We get people to court. Okay, so I get, a, I get, let's say I've done something really bad, or maybe it's not that bad. I don't know, like, the levels, right? Mm -hmm. The judge says that my bail is $100,000. Sure. What do I have to pay you? And, like, is you have to pay a certain penalty at what point for that particular number? Let's just use that as a target and walk me through. $100,000 bond, it depend, it's all... It's all negotiation, so it would differ between bondsmen on what they would charge. For example, if you have an attorney, attorneys have a relationship with bonding companies, so they'll give you a discounted rate if that happens because they have a relationship with the attorney. You're less risky of a bond. If Is you that just because you're working with an officer of the court, or does the attorney actually see some sort of benefit? No, that's because the no. I would say that's because of a relationship between the bonding company and the attorney. He sends work to them, so it. I think also it's a less risky bond in that situation. If you're arrested in Dallas County, but the charge is in Bear County, which is San Antonio, if the bondsman in Dallas County would probably see that as a higher risk bond because they're looking after somebody that has to show up in court in San Antonio. So they might charge more. But if we look across the industry, we would say 10% of the face amount of the bond is usually a good measure of what a general fee is. So if we used a 10% as the starting point, it could be lower than that because of other factors. And it could be higher than that because of other factors as well. So on that example, a $10,000 fee would be of the premium that's paid. And that could either be paid in Texas currently. You could either pay it in payments or you could pay it in installments or you could pay it all up front. Now we are having a discussion about that, whether we should 
be required to have that paid up front before they're released from jail. So yeah, even I do okay, but 10 grand would be a huge amount. How long would I, how long does the person end up on bail? I've not been arrested, so I'm not quite sure, but if I had to pay you 10 grand, like what would that typical time frame be? Like I know Alex Murdoch is the famous case that everybody's talking about now. It's been two years since the murders of his wife and son. So I know it takes a long time, but what it would generally the time frame be for someone out on bail? Depends on the county or the jurisdiction, especially now that we're coming out of COVID because the backlogs when the courts were shut down just grew exponentially. No, no cases were being resolved, but new cases were being filed. And so their backlogs have, are really high. I was at a hearing in Austin before the uh, one of the committees in the Senate and the Harris County DA was testifying. And she said that currently it's four years on a really bad case from the time of filing to get it filed. That's one of the problems we're having. You're seeing a whole lot of cases being dismissed or it's taking three, four, five years to get it to trial because of COVID. That's insane. But yeah, I've been going through the medical system. It's not much better. How willing are you to work with, obviously, an attorney's expensive, right? The bail project where we did the interview, dealing mostly with people who are economically disadvantaged, not me, not somebody who would afford a lawyer and just figure it out and maybe my family would help me, but people who are just really hard up and especially disproportionately affecting people of color. If I came to you, what's your argument against that? This really seems to affect people in lower income brackets. So how does the bail industry take that into account the disparities as well as the income issue. We deal with that every day. We deal with risk assessment on evaluating individuals. Most of the time, we're not dealing with the defendants. We're dealing with the family members. We're dealing with extended families. When I'm, I think that the Bell Project is misguided. I disagree completely that we that there's a disparate treatment because I think we have an inner city crime problem. And I think that's the explanation for why we have a greater makeup of one racial group in, in because that's we have a greater makeup of that group in the inner cities. Other groups that can afford to move out or have moved out. But we've got schools that have failed those groups. We've got crime that's just incredible. We've got drugs that are terrible there. Families have failed. No families stay together. And they have no economic opportunity now. And so we're creating a cesspool that is just making more and more criminals. And I don't think it has – I don't think it's a racial Result, I think it is a demographic inner city crime problem, especially with drugs and gangs. I'm not meaning to be disrespectful to a guest, but aren't you a part of that problem where the bail project looked at it and goes, you're profiting off of it. You're making the lives harder of these folks. How would you respond to that? We're making the people. F okay, so let me walk because, you through the people uh, that are getting arrested. The, okay. You know, the people that are getting arrested, first time offenders, they're getting released. They're getting released. They're not getting required to post a bond. They're just getting released most of the time now. And so when someone who's been arrested multiple times, charged in the past, then, you know, you're just like you as you have friends, you have family members. The first people you're going to chase away are your friends. They're the, they're the first one. They're going to help you a couple of times. Then they're going to abandon you. 
your family is going to stick with you the longest. I keep telling my daughters that you may have peer pressure, but your family is going to stick with you longer than anybody else. And then there's going to be a point where you've committed enough crime that those people, even your family members going to no longer come for your call when you are, have been arrested three, four, five, six times. The bail project has found those are the people they're getting out of jail. I think that when you look at the charitable bail organizations, they were created because of protests and there was a large call. They're going to need money to bail out first-time offenders and that didn't materialize. So we have a large amount of money that's, I would say, looking for a problem that never happened. And so they're ending up bonding out people that are in jail that their families are no longer even reaching out to them. And so they're bonding, they're bonding out the most dangerous people that need to stay in jail as they found in Las Vegas when they bonded somebody out and they ended up killing somebody. And so that organization is now being sued by the family for bonding out that person out of jail. Yeah. That's one of the reasons the bail projects no longer allowed to operate in Indianapolis is that they bailed someone out. And then I think they shot or killed a police officer. A murder was definitely committed by somebody who had been bailed out by the bail project. There well, are, go ahead. I think that. the situation that you mentioned is caused a, a bill to be filed to limit the dollar amount of bonds they can file. The premise that they say is they want to help the indigent, the people who are stuck in on lev- low level crimes. And so the Indiana bill it said, okay, that's what we're going to limit you to. We're going to limit you to misdemeanors less than $2,000. And they criticized that bill. And I think there's a lawsuit pending that was just argued at the Court of Appeals in the last few months saying that they shouldn't be, should not have that limitation. I think, I do not think the bail project, um, respectfully, I don't, they're not, they don't have 200 years of experience of getting people to court. They just assume that we as the bail industry or my clients as the bail industry, all we do is just get people out of jail and that's all you have to do. Everybody's going to go to court. I think the pandemic proved that to be absolutely false. There's a reason why? why there's a reason why all of these other groups have two or three or four hundred times the failure to appear rate than the private organ, private industry has. So we get people to court with a failure to appear rate of ten percent or less. They the Vera Institute said any change that we go to is going to have at least a forty percent failure to appear rate, and that should be okay. The problem is a forty percent failure to appear rate cripples the criminal justice system. We already have people who are overworked and don't have the time to address the cases. Can you imagine every week if you had a thousand cases filed, 400 don't show up and that exponentially increases every week because you've got to move those cases to the next week. That's what our urban areas are like. And when you say it's okay to have a 40% failure to appear rate, look at Harris County. Harris County currently on misdemeanor cases has an 80% failure to appear rate. That's Austin, right? That's Houston. Houston. Okay. And you can find that statistic at harriscountycourtwatch.com. And they're not even saying it's wrong. They're just saying, hey, that's okay. We're just missing a bunch of those cases. And so that's the argument that the bail project, when I did the interview and I pushed him equally as hard, saying without some sort of cash retainer or some sort of person like yourself consistently pushing, how do you expect people to get back to court? They didn't have the numbers that you had in terms of the failure rate. But their argument was you can't just skip out on court. You're eventually going to be found out and you also have to pay this money still. The logic is that you've got to come to court no matter what. You're going to have warrants out. What do you say to that? 
But that's not what we're seeing in California, in New York. That's not what we found in our statistics in real life. What happens is people don't come to court. And like in Harris County, they entered into a settlement of a federal lawsuit where they had to miss court three times before they could do anything to them. And then so many people were missing court, they started waiving your obligation to come to court. And so you don't really have to come until the very end. And then nobody came. So they just end up dismissing the case. And as a result, you start sending message to defendants that this is a green light to commit more crime. And like in Harris, California, they had a proposition. They said, you know what, we're going to we're going to change some some crimes that are felonies currently for theft, and we're going to move them to misdemeanors. And this will be good for the defendants. They'll be able to find more jobs. They'll be able to go back into society, and this will be good for them. So it, they did a referendum, and it passed. But the problem is then in our urban cities, the prosecutors decided we're not going to prosecute theft under $950 anymore. And what impact has that had? That impact has been stores have closed because they can't they can't sustain $25,000 a day in shoplifting. And then we have businesses closing because they no longer think they can p- provide a safe environment in the inner city for their employees. And who's getting harmed by that? The very demographic that you're saying that we this, they're getting a disparate treatment in the jail. That's the group that's getting hit the hardest in these inner cities by this rising crime. And uh, I think that the argument that, oh, you can't just avoid court. Yeah, that's what we're seeing. We're creating chaos. And the only way the courts can respond to chaos is either just dismiss cases or buckle down and work their asses off. And right now in Harris County, they're just dismissing cases. In August of last year, I looked at, they provide a report every month of their dismissals of misdemeanor cases, of their resolutions of misdemeanor cases. Over 90% of them were dismissed for the month. Now, 90% of your cases are dismissed. That means either you're picking on them or you're throwing up your hands because you can't get them resolved any other way. Yeah, because you have a constant n- number being added to the conveyor belt. Yeah. I live in Indianapolis and I live kind of downtown. I'm about 20 blocks north of the, the Monument Circle. And I had about $1,500 worth of stuff stolen out of my garage, my beautiful big green egg grill. And when I talked to the detective, they said, listen, even if we do find these guys and we had video of them, a couple of guys that look like they were white guys from rural areas in a diesel truck, they came to my neighborhood to steal stuff or they, you just don't have a diesel truck living downtown. And they said, the prosecutor's just not going to do anything about it. So even if we find them or we have leads, just don't expect anything. Don't expect to get your stuff back. And it's why a lot of my neighbors had the Republican. They have, there's a phenomenon in where I live where it's a pride flag hanging out front in the Republican prosecutor's yard sign in their yard as this race buckled down. Now, of course, the Democrat ended up winning, but it's a very real issue is petty theft. And, and that's felonious theft. But that happens all the time around where I am. I got locked out of my house today and all my friends were like, why don't you leave a key hidden under a rock? I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so it just, it does make the, th- now these are very small concerns compared to 10 blocks east or west. of. Well, wait, but um, let's move that concern to Texas. Okay. So we have the castle doctrine in Texas. And so what I'm going to tell you is this, where we are is not sustainable because let's move that to, okay, so in Smith County, where I live in Texas, someone is walking off with my green egg and I drive up and I pull out a gun and I shoot and kill them. I can even shoot them in the back. 
But under the Castle Doctrine, I have the right in Texas to defend my life and my property. And so are we are creating a situation where we're going back to just the old posse, where if law enforcement's not willing to do it, it's going to get done. Either it's going to be vigilante justice, and that's why I keep saying it's just not sustainable. Because in my example, while they would not have prosecuted the defendant for stealing your stuff, they're not going to prosecute you for killing the guy for stealing your stuff. Yeah. So it just evolves and Mm -hmm. becomes worse. How do you balance this concern? How do you see it as somebody who works in this day in and day out? The concern that, I'll be very honest with you, you put somebody into the criminal justice system here, you've got all the different fees, you've got all... I've got to pay you. I've got to pay the courts. If I get out on probation, I've got to pay them. And people who are poor just don't have the same advantages as the rest of us. And going to jail for drug possession and some of these other things, it starts them down a path of recidivism. And it disproportionately affects all these different communities. So how do you balance the concern you're bringing up with that concern? And where's a good place to make sure that we're helping people commit one crime and set them up for success and make sure that we're not just slipping into what we're seeing in San Francisco. I think that's a question that's really the answer is evading people right now. I think it's evading people because politics has just gotten so involved in this issue. We probably need a top-down review of what's a crime. Sometimes we keep adding offenses, and that's the politics of it. So this year, we're going to add this offense. There's a crime that gets a lot of public attention. So next year, we're going to add a new crime. And we need to do an evaluation of crimes. But I, you know what? I don't agree. I think the problem that we're seeing in our criminal justice system is we have just dropped all accountability. I don't think the problems on the front end, the first-time offender, that's the what people were told and that's what people got involved with is we need to protect the first-time offender. That's not the trouble. If you've been arrested six or seven times or if you've been charged and convicted six or seven times but you keep getting dismissals or you keep getting probation or you keep getting deferred adjudication and then when you violate it, you they don't do anything to you. Or you get a charge and you just don't go to court. You miss court three, four, five, six, seven times. I have a problem with that. And I think the criminal justice system has a problem with that. And so I think that the real problem is a complete lack of accountability. And it started with this notion that we have to help the first-time offenders. But now it's gotten to where it's just pervasive. We can't hold anybody accountable, even if they miss court 10 times. And I'm like, okay, give them once, give them twice. But where are we never going to draw the line? We're not going to draw the line at 10 times? And I don't think the public realizes that's really where we are, especially in our urban cities. Nobody's being held accountable. Yeah, so I guess I just don't trust a legislature or a legislative body of any kind to fix that problem. They're the ones who keep creating the laws. I do agree with you that it's just when we use a law and punishment and the cops to fix every single idea that we have, you end up in the spot we're in. Does Is it on the judges at this point to kind of pull back? Is it on prosecutors? Where? What are some steps and who's responsible for bringing back that personal responsibility and accountability? Let me start by saying, what's the prosecutor's job in, in, in the criminal cases? I would like in the DA in LA County, 
he last year said, or I think it was even the year before, somebody contacted him and said, really what you're doing is hurting victims. And the response from his office is, we really have a difference of opinion about who the real victim is. So they were saying that the defendant who's accused of a crime is the victim, not the person who had the crime committed against them. And the point I would make on that is if the prosecutor is arguing for the defendant and the defense attorney is arguing for the defendant and the judge is arguing for the defendant, then in those situations, who in the courtroom is arguing for the person who had the crime committed against them? And in many situations, the answer is no one anymore. Not in LA, they're not. In Baltimore, or where a prosecutor was removed, they're not. Another prosecutor, Texas, is looking at a statute on a way to remove judges, or no, who do for DAs who refuse to enforce the law. And so we're trying to find this balance between when a DA has the ability, because of their they have so much going on, where they can decide not to prosecute certain crimes. Versus they're just a political agenda where they're just not going to prosecute a whole class of crime, even though it's a crime on the books. I, the problem with this is you have to find a political compromise. And who would have ever uh, thought in Texas uh, that uh-oh. crime was something that was so political? We used to not have a yeah. so political. Now it's so political that your decision, you can't compromise. And so we're going to have to have a battle where one side wins over the other. And if you look at our history, we've been through this before. We've had cycles before. And the last cycle started in the 60s, ended in the 80s with the election of Reagan. That may be where we're headed now. We're going to go through, we've gone through a cycle right now where we're pushing to the left and we're getting a backlash. And what we're doing right now is not sustainable. And so there will be a correction and there will be a correction because we cannot sustain what we're currently doing. Texas, you have some of the biggest blue cities in the entire country, which is why it's becoming a purple state. Really, Indiana is a lot more of a a lot more. Texas is a purple state. The governor usually wins by 12 points, 13 points. And that's really not a purple state. You'd know better than I would. But when you look at Austin and Houston and San Antonio and the population and the size of these suburbs that are starting to grow, I see a lot of division in Indiana. Indianapolis and the suburbs are like 30% of the state. Um, So we have the same thing where the governor and the legislature usually wins out. But that sets up exactly what you're talking about, where Ryan Mears, the Indianapolis prosecutor, says, nice abortion law you have there, I'm not going to enforce it. Nice drug law you have there, I'm not going to enforce it. Because I have no state Democratic Party to back me up. And I imagine that's what you're seeing in Texas, and that's only going to intensify until... Right so now, Marion yeah. County somehow, which is 70% Democrat, will elect a Republican for prosecutor, or we're just going to keep going down this road. Right now, we're having a fight between Harris County and the state legislature over, over who sets criminal policy for the state. Harris County, if Harris County really wanted to make an impact, a really good impact on bail reform, they could have enacted some policies which are similar to what we've discussed or what they they keep pushing or what the bail project pushes. But if they layered into that a, a very strong accountability, it would have been successful. They could have used it as a model. Instead, they go to Indiana and argue or Ohio and argue you should adopt the Harris County model, it should be the model for the nation, and it has an 80% failure to appear rate on misdemeanors. And you, you just take that, all you say is go to this website, 
do you really want this to be your model? And then it gets rejected. Yeah, that's we have a lot of different laws that are being imported from various places like <laughs> that that are being argued. And it's become that's one of the arguments against organizations like ALEC, which is a conservative group that helps state sure. legislators. And it, McDonald's, it puts you on that that conveyor belt of laws instead of local legislators thinking about local problems in a local way and discussing with communities. It's just taking templates. So I'm in full agreement with you on that. So let me pick apart the prosecutor thing just a little bit more, because if I have a police officer friend on IMPD here, he says libertarians are always going on about how, oh, why is this person in jail for pot when Brittany Griner gets out of jail in Russia? And he he argues like we haven't arrested anybody for more than less than 10 pounds of pot in 10 years. We're just not enforcing that because we have so many other crimes as we grow our resources are set at the 20 years ago levels, but Indianapolis has exploded. We just, we don't have the ability to have those lesser concerns. So shouldn't a prosecutor have some discretion in what they charge? Or is that not what's going on? It's not the low level pot stuff that we're talking about. It's something much more insidious. It's what's going on is more insidious. Since the bail reform movement has taken hold in Harris County, capital murder is somebody that does not have to be released on bail. And between capital murder, the Crime Stoppers is tracking in the last several years, 180 people who've been released on bail for capital murder or murder and then committed a second murder. And so it's like you get one free murder in Harris County before you're going to be held in jail. And so I think we're getting this pressure where it's just, it's just, we can't even agree on the law anymore. I've heard judges in Harris County say that's what the constitution requires. I, if they say they can't afford a bond, then I have to release them on what they say they can't afford. That is not true. That is not a correct statement of the law, but that's what they quote as the law to support what they're doing. And people believe it. If you're in jail and you have a criminal history, you're no longer there because you can't afford it. You're there because we set the bond amount based on the risk, based upon all those factors. One of them is your ability to pay, but also criminal history is a requirement. And if it's if you've got a criminal history, you can't say that you're there because you're poor. You're say you, you're there because you have a criminal history. Right. So people are so in Texas. Let me make sure I get this right and I understand it. You you constitutionally now can be let out if you can't afford a bond. No, you have. All these factors that the court has to consider for setting bail in 1715 of the Code of Criminal Procedure. One of them is your ability to pay. The one that we added to the statute last session was your criminal history, which you would think makes sense. You would think that it's always made sense. You want to look at their criminal history before you let them out of jail. The problem is we didn't have a database system that would allow you to look at their state criminal history. You could only look county by county. So we've implemented those changes. And there's other factors, the seriousness of the crime, the risk to public safety. To me, the biggest factor in releasing somebody from jail is your criminal history. Yeah. So why do they let somebody out who's murdered somebody? How does that happen? You've just had all this change in policy and you're being told you can't hold people. And we had, we have two, two, a judge who's released two people on $1 bonds who has extensive criminal histories. And he said, the reason why he was doing it is he didn't agree with the change in the 
law from the legislature to require criminal histories to be reviewed and limiting PR bonds or personal personal bonds. So it's just politics. And uh, some of those judges got reelected because of the demographics in Harris County. Some people would argue for other reasons. Uh, but I, you know what? I just don't know. I've never seen a situation where identity politics overcomes public safety. I was thinking this last election, public safety would overcome identity politics, but it didn't in some areas. And But it was close. Even in Harris County, it was close. And so... You see some. You see the beginnings. You even see the president of the United States starting to blink on crime because he says that he's going to. He will not veto if the Senate overturns the crime reform that the D.C. Council just enacted. The House has already overruled it. The Senate is expected to overrule it, and then there's been this big outcry because he says he will not veto it. So you're starting to see the Democrats blink on crime. So I think that the numbers from the last election, the underlying numbers they're looking at says crime is a big issue. And I do think crime is a big issue. And that's why I keep saying it's not sustainable. So we have to find a solution. And if we don't find a solution that works for everybody, then the backlash is going to hurt the people, these very groups, the people supporting Black Lives Matter. It's good. The backlash will decimate them and they won't like it. But the, right now they they're just won't. They're unwilling to find a compromise. So what would you say that compromise is? If I, if, let's say I put Ken Good in charge of Harris County, and we're going to ship out your template sure. uh, and just we'll railroad this into every major city. Give me like three or four workable things maybe that that if I'm listening here in Indianapolis or Dayton or San Francisco or L.A. or wherever, right? What should I be watching out for and what should I be advocating for in terms of change? I think a kin good model for criminal justice is going to have number one accountability is probably the lead element. And so if you miss court, fail to appear for court, the next time we get you in, I'm going to know, I'm going to want to know what happened. And if you got a good excuse or you have an, a weird excuse in Texas law, if you had a flat tire on the way to court, that's a good excuse. Or if you have a heart attack and go to the hospital, that's a good excuse. In fact, that's a grounds to reinstate the bond. But if you just, even oversleeping the first time, these are problem children. That's the reason why they're in the criminal justice system. They haven't fit, they haven't found their niche. But I'm going to tell you, after that, after you miss once, if you miss twice, I'm holding you in court. I'm going to hold you in jail until your case is resolved. The problem that I think the biggest problem we have is people saying, I can't hold them. I can't hold them. I can't hold them. If you've got a condition on their bond that they do certain things, you can, and then they break that. And if they fail to appear, we have a whole new criminal charge for failing to appear and we don't file those. So I think the first element would be accountability. And I think that would solve a huge amount of our problem. Because once people start realizing that if you don't show up for court, they will, there will be consequences. People will start showing up for court. And once you start getting people short of court, then you can start getting cases resolved. You have to have a certain, at the beginning, you got to push cases to trial. You have to quit giving just over and over, reset, reset. You have to start pushing cases and you have to start denying resets. And, and so I, and I, that's not rocket science, but I think what we have is a complete lack of accountability now. Can I ask you on the recess mm -hmm. thing or reset? Do these cases just keep getting delayed for some ideological purpose or is it just the continuances get granted and are they trying to fix some world problem or is it just a lack of ability to get these cases done because of covid stuff 
Okay, so the easiest answer is sometimes we're waiting for lab results. Drugs, and I'm not talking about marijuana, but our heavy drugs, they've got to go be tested and come back to be proven to be illegal drugs. And so a lot of times you're waiting for that. I heard somebody say that DPS has contracted with every available lab in the state of Texas to do testing on stuff waiting awaiting trial or waiting criminal cases. And there is somebody had a grant or a DA had a grant so they could go out and try to do a contract with a lab so they could get their cases to move faster. And they could not find a lab in the state of Texas that already had not been contracted with DPS. And so I think another problem we have is that we've got to get the behind the scenes stuff. And let me just say, there's some unintended consequences of the things we've done in the past. We've now made body cams all have video. We got to, we store it. But do you know when that all a criminal case gets filed? Then we have to organize it. We have to download it. We have to make it available. And you think, oh, that's easy. Not on 10,000 cases. And so we have created this bureaucracy of getting stuff and then having to keep it and organize it. And that's making it really difficult for cases to proceed quickly. And then I think another problem we have is the defense attorneys have learned through COVID. Just say no, delay, and then they'll eventually dismiss your case. Because Mm -hmm. defense attorneys know justice delayed is justice denied. And sure, they want to delay it. They're into it. Let's delay it as long as possible because your chance of getting your case to go away is greater. And so we have to fight that. But if I was going to say, what else? What else is there? I would encourage more people to use the private industry. And that sounds, okay, you're just pandering to to your industry. But if my industry has a 10% or less failure to appear rate, everybody else has a 40% or higher, and that's what the Vera Institute says is okay, then my backlog is going to increase just by the type of release I use. So I'm going to use, I'm going to use my discretion and I'm going to give it to people. And I'm going to give it to them for the people who I think are poor. And I'm going to give it to them the first, maybe the second time if they have a good reason why they miss court. But I'm not giving it to anybody else because of the impact it will have on my backlogs. And if you really want to be really cruel, don't ever give out a PR bond. And you and you don't even have to work harder and your backlog will come down slowly. But that's not what the system's made for. If we Oh, and the final thing I would do is I would set up a some type of system like a bail schedule so that if you're arrested, you're charged with this crime, you can do it. You can be diverted away from magistration so that me or my magistrates can spend that extra time they have truly evaluating whether someone's poor. Because right now they don't do it to anybody. Everybody's coming to magistration and they don't have time to differentiate. And so that creates chaos, create Chaos creates pandemic. Just to clarify, so so you'd like to see a little bit more time where you and a magistrate is like what an assistant judge who helps you evaluate the bail, or is it the judge? Or explain magistrate. It's really weird, but magistrate can be anybody in Texas from the mayor all the way to the chief justice of the Supreme Court. That is somebody that you go before when you are initially arrested to be told your rights and to have bail set. And so a magistrate can be any judge, but there's also in our inner cities, we hire magistrates. That's all they do. They do the walk. When you get arrested, you go before a magistrate and that's all they do all day long is see people who've been arrested at the start of their criminal case. Uh, And that's what I'm saying. If we're going to set up a procedure or Ken's world in the inner cities, 
I would direct my magistrates. I would set up a procedure to divert as many people away from magistration as I can because with the bail schedule so they, if they can afford it, then the magistrates have more time to evaluate when someone says they're poor. I don't see anything wrong with that. And the courts have held bail schedules constitutional. I think that the reason why we have opposition to it is they want to create chaos, create chaos, creates greater opportunities. I would argue in our inner cities, are we, if we were bought and paid for by organized crime and uh, gangs, would we be doing anything different right now than we're currently doing? And I would argue, no, that's a good point. I'm a libertarian. So the government is an organized gang, Ken, but I get exactly what you're saying. You're basically, uh, yeah, I get, I get what you're saying, but answer me this. What is your, as a libertarian, what is your position of what's going on in Portland where we're seeing the result of decriminalization of all heavy drug crime, any drugs. And we're seeing overdoses. We're seeing, death in numbers we've you know never seen and nobody seems to even care you can't have first imagine portland and oregon screwing up public policy i just they put the identity political concerns first as opposed to really putting people first and when you look at some place like portugal or chile where they've decriminalized drugs it's not only been a nationwide effort it's also been very treatment heavy to begin with, and it wasn't voluntary treatment. You were forced into treatment. You weren't put in jails for the drugs. You weren't put in jails at all for drugs in, in Portugal, for instance. And But you were put into treatment. And you have to have that people-first mentality, where if you are just decriminalizing drugs and not arresting for anybody, and you're not going to put anybody through the court system, you're offering no treatment... It's voluntary. You're going to get the kind of policy that you're getting in some of these inner cities that are trying this because you have to have wraparound services. That's just the end of it. When you're dealing with homelessness, when you're dealing with mental illness that comes with homelessness, drug use, these are all intertwined, right? You've got to have some network in your city. Like, for instance, in Indianapolis, we don't have government agencies that run the homeless shelters, but it's private organizations that are tightly networked by the city and constantly in communication with policymakers to let the people who run the private organizations steer the policy. And so we have a fairly good network of treatment for drug users, for homeless people who are suffering mental illness, people who are just going through a difficult time and giving them an exit ramp out of that. That, to me, seems like a good model. I'm not an anarchist. I don't believe that you should just erase all laws. I don't think that's possible. But when you look at Portland, when you look at... uh, But isn't Portland just an example of what we've seen across the spectrum? On We have this promise made. Promising Portland was Mm -hmm. we would decriminalize drugs and that we would be able to save more people. And so that hasn't... The result of that promise has been death. We're just, we're creating anarchy, like you said, but wasn't that also, we didn't, we have the same promise in California. We're going to take federal felony theft and change it to misdemeanor and we'll have less theft. We'll have more people working. And what we got was decriminalization. It looks like to me, the promises that are being made across the country on bail form, they're not, the result is decriminalization. 
And if the public was to vote on, do we want to decriminalize all you know this and get the result that we're now seeing, they would have voted no. In California, they'd have voted no to decriminalize theft under $950, but that's not the way it was presented to them. And so we yeah. can't even have an honest debate about what we want to do. So they have to do it in a twisted and hidden way. And they even trick the conservatives to support them like they did in California with the referendum. And nobody would support the result that we're getting now. And we're seeing that across the country. In New York, we had the same promise. And it just any promise like on bail reform turns into decriminalization. That's what we're seeing. Yeah, you're ironically seeing from big government progressives the argument that classical liberals like myself have against anarchy, right? So the arguments that libertarians will have is that you just are going to collapse the government, turn everybody loose, and there's not going to yeah, be like that's a, a good point. Seeing from big government progressives an anarchy essentially that libertarians try to fight against because you are putting these identity political concerns ahead of good policy. And I totally agree with you in that the people that I live around, the they want good policy. They want good outcomes. What I think at the root of why kind of most people go along with identity politics and leftist talking points is that they want a person they don't know to be okay. And they're willing to look at it and go, if I were ever arrested, this Ken guy is just going to be a total jerk and he's going <laughs> to charge me all this money and he's law and order and I want them to have a second chance. I think the left is very good at storytelling, especially in some <laughs> of these situations and the storytelling doesn't actually fit the public policy. And so then three to five to 10 years go by and everybody goes, why is Walgreens not in L.A. or San Francisco anymore? Oh, it's because of this. Or Yeah, why, why is Walmart closing down everywhere? And it's because the story isn't matching up to the actual policy, which you're getting when you have politicians who are trying to move up the ladder, making decisions on where to actually enforce the law or not is a functional anarchy. And I do agree with you that libertarians, classical liberal libertarians, first and foremost, it's the rule of law. Democracy in the Democratic Republic, you have a legislature pass the law and it's debated in the legislator, legislature. And then everybody up and down the line has to respect the rule of law. But as we've seen over the last decade, especially, I think really starting with the Bush administration, but gasoline on the fire with Obama, where he's passing executive order after executive order, mm -hmm. not obeying the Constitution, not obeying the Congress. Congress constantly, since Bush, giving up its power and kind of laying down for the president. That has now has moved down the line into our local cities. And you're, what you're seeing is a lack of the rule of law. You see it on the right, too. You mm -hmm. see it I don't what want to I, debate January 6th. That attitude of I can stay president is an erosion of the rule of law. And the outcomes of people not following the agreed upon rules is this functional anarchy. And I don't believe in it. And I've said for a while that our democracy requires to be successful the consent of the losing party to govern. Yes. And we have not had for several election cycles, probably more, the consent of the losing party for the majority to rule. The election was stolen. And even back when, even predating Trump, the election was, the winner was illegitimate. And, and now you're seeing it where if you don't rule the way I want you to rule, then I'm going to delegitimize, delegitimize you. 
We're seeing yeah. that with the U.S. Supreme Court. We disagree with your ruling, so we're going to call you illegitimate. And that's that's where we are. And it's really hard. Who do you listen to in that situation? Because when every comment, every talking point is based on politics instead of what's good for our country. we I remember a time, I'm so old, I remember a time that a politician would rather lose than do certain things. I don't think we live in that time anymore. No, we live in using politics to get yourself on Fox News to get yourself to be governor. I mean, there's a guy here in Indiana who's running for Senate. His name's Jim Banks. The Jim Banks that I knew in the state Senate was an amazing, honorable, thoughtful person. Fox News Jim Banks is just awful, <laughs> right? And it's I'm not just beating up on the right. It's analogous on the left, like we've talked about. But it goes back to those fundamental core principles of respecting the rule of law and holding people accountable for their decisions. And if you commit a crime and it's a crime, you should be prosecuted. I do think there should be some prosecutorial discretion. I am dismayed to hear that murder is just legal in Houston because of prosecutor prosecutorial discretion going awry. But yeah, a guy like Ryan Mears wants to move up the ladder. He wants to be mayor. So he's going yeah, to. Isn't the whole problem? We really stopped all accountability, mm -hmm. even in politicians. If you're in the right party and we only have several votes cushion, and it really doesn't matter what you did. Look at, you can see it on the left, you can see it on the right. Currently, there's a guy in the House that's from the right that he's being really criticized for his resume and stuff like that. And nobody's really. There was a period of time where everybody was held accountable. If he did something, then you were your party was going to take action against you because they were going to self-police. Right now, I would say that our friends on the left are only self-policing if it's an issue involving women. Otherwise, they're looking the other way. And for a period of time, it was only the right that was holding politicians accountable. And you know what? They they lost ground because of it and because th they were the only party. Now, I don't think either party is holding their people accountable well, unless at, it just becomes toxic. Look at the way that Trump has humiliated the Republicans and they've gone, thank you, sir. May I have some more? I think you're right. No, ben, you got to be careful with that. I don't no, know. If it's exactly Trump's the case. core supporters do not agree with that statement. And that's the problem. I mean, in his core supporters, look at CPAC. He was 60, 70 percent CPAC. He's, because the only, only people going to CPAC now are Trump supporters. His core supporters still have enough votes to get him the nomination. It doesn't mean they're right. The uh, inability of Republicans yeah. over the last eight years to enforce their own norms and values on him and his movement have led to Trump being the Republican Party and no one left to hold him accountable to where he can say, I'm just going to stay president. I think Trump's big, we don't need to be talking Trump, but Trump's biggest <laughs> issue is he's not a politician, but just, he's been a politician long enough to say he's not a politician. His biggest problem is if you poke him, he's going to poke you back yeah. no matter what. And that's just his personality. If you look at his policies, you would come to a different conclusion, but he's, he is a, a certain personality type. I mean, and you know what? The people that have taken advantage of it are the Democrats. The ones who want him to become the nominee for president the most in the next election are the Democrats. He, he lost 2020. It was an I easy mean, win. Yeah, I would agree with you completely. I think Ben Shapiro had an analysis that was exactly right. For a long time, the Democrats, because they don't get held accountable in the media, do whatever they want to do. And the Republicans, through the Tea Party years, held on and said, these are our values. We're going to just grit our teeth and bear it. And then when John McCain was a racist and Mitt Romney was a racist and misogynist, then they just went, all right, here, 
you can have Donald yeah. Trump. And then I would go further than that. We have now created this period of time where it's all identity. You cannot vote for that person because of your identity. Your identity, you can't support. I'm going to tell you, DeSantos, if he picks up steam, it will be called worse than Trump. <laughs> Any Republican after Trump will be called worse than Trump because of identity politics. Yeah. And until we figure out how to get around that, it's toxic for both parties because the people who get in power on the left are, don't, are not held accountable. They feel like they can do anything they want. That's not good for the country. And then we have good people who would require the other party to moderate, can't get elected because of identity politics. And so it's taking our, our country to the extremes and not requiring any leader to compromise. And so that's from the very top all the way down to the state level to the county level. Look at Harris County. We all agree there's a crime problem. We all agree that w what we're doing currently is not working. But we've got a proposal or Ann Johnson, a representative from Harris County, has filed a bill to, to increase the number of courts in Harris County by eight so they can handle this backlog of 1,800 capital murder cases pending. And you know what? The commissioner's court won't pr approve a resolution that they'll fund them because they don't want to lose control over the political issue of crime in Harris County. And identity politics is being toxic to criminal justice reform. It really feels like nobody wants to be the bad guy. You know? I don't even think that. I think it's you can't vote for the other side. You can't vote yeah. for the law and order candidate because of your identity. And so that's pushing the other party further and further left because they feel like they can't lose and there's nothing they can do. And so they might as well just go whole hog. And so, again, it's not sustainable. It will cause a backlash. People, even on these identity politics issues, will get to the point where they don't feel safe. We will have the same cycle that we had in the 60s, 70s, and we will get a backlash as a result, or we can find a compromise. And then the pendulum will swing the other way, and then we'll have stop and frisk 2.0. And then the wheel keeps going on, just like Game of Thrones. Ken, I greatly appreciated our conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. It was a lot of fun, and you brought a lot of knowledge that, that I had not heard, and I really enjoyed hearing it. I didn't enjoy hearing it, but <laughs> I, I don't enjoy it. talking about it. Yeah. Shameless self-promotion time. Where can people follow if you, they want to know more? If you want to know more about criminal justice issues, we have the pbtx.com website, the Professional Bondsman of Texas website. We have a blog where we highlight stories in the news. We also have a podcast called The Bell Post, where we talk about these types of issues twice a month and trying to make a library of issues so we can educate politicians across the country. All right. Ken Good, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening here on The Chris Spangle Show. We really appreciate it. As always, if you got something out of this, then please share it with your friends and family. That's the best way that you can support great conversations like this, as well as the content creators that you appreciate. Not just me. Anybody that makes content, go, go find Ken's Twitter. I'll put it in the show notes. Retweet him, too. All right. Thanks so much for joining. We will see you again soon here on The Chris Spangle Show.